And so I want to start with the arrival fallacy. This is um, it's actually an article written in the New York Times by A.C. Shilton, a freelance author. He wrote an article called, You Accomplished Something Great, So Now What? And it's built on this thing called the arrival fallacy. I don't have a subs- subscription to the New York Times, and I wasn't going to pay for it. So, uh, But I did read uh, kind of a summary of this article, and I read some quotes out of the article that gave me an idea of what this arrival fallacy is. And I think I put it on the screen. It is the illusion that once we make it, once we attain our goal or reach our destination, we will reach lasting happiness, said Ten Balsharar, the Harvard-trained positive psychology expert who is coined with coining, who is credited with coining the term. He goes on, Ben Sharar said, a rival fallacy is the reason some Hollywood stars struggle with mental health issues and substance abuse later in life. These individuals start out unhappy, but they say to themselves, it's okay, because when I make it, then I'll be happy. But then they make it, and while they may feel briefly fulfilled, the feeling doesn't last. This time they're unhappy, but more than they're unhappy, they're unhappy without hope. He explained, because before they lived under the illusion, well, the false hope that once they make it, then they'll be happy. Hmm. The problem is that achievement doesn't equal happiness, at least not over the long term. But this isn't a message that most of us are familiar with. In fact, it's almost antithetical to the American dream, which tells us that hard work and achievement deliver a happy life. And so we push our children to become captain of the travel soccer squad, a first chair player in the orchestra and student body president because we want them to be successful. We want them to be happy. happy. Yeah. And then when they're 34, fresh off a big achievement and so deeply unhappy that they find themselves sobbing in their truck in a Walmart parking lot, parking lot, hello, it's me again, and this happened to this woman who wrote the article, they could end up feeling as though something is inherently broken within them. Professor Jamie Gunman says you should banish any sentences like this. I'll be happy if I can just achieve X. Dr. Grunman recently conducted a study in which he asked participants to rate their desire for happiness. The more they thought about how to make themselves happier or, uh, or worried about their happiness levels relative to their peers, the less happy they actually were. And you know what stunned me about that whole thing, really? right is the fact is is how the psychologists of the world today keep coming back to the basic biblical message it's right in scripture in fact i was thinking about that right this is the message that adam and eve had in the garden and then went searching for in the wilderness of the world that, that that's what they were doing like they're out in the world looking for happiness they had it in the garden they they had joy and peace and contentment it's the age-old problem lamented by king solomon in the book of ecclesiastes This has been around for a long, long time. And the the thing is, when we talk about the arrival fallacy and where we all want to land in life, what we're talking about is the spiritually fruitful life because that's the abundant life. Like everybody wants peace and joy and contentment and patience and and so on. We all want those things. You're not going to find them in your own personal success or knocking down various goals. The bottom line is the fruitful life is the abundant life now last week we said joy is the super fruit or the super food that feeds my soul and gives me the strength to live a fruitful life and so the reality is think about this it's not like i do x y and z and i attain joy it's like no i find joy in christ it helps me to do x y and z and and x y and z is is not you know uh like 
popularity and prestige and possessions and all that stuff. It is really the reality of the fruits of the Spirit that we're talking about within this series. So joy then is not the aim of the journey, it's what empowers me on the journey, and that is a big difference from the arrival fallacy the whole world is locked into. Joy and peace aren't out there, they're in in here. I have them, As as a believer in Christ, I have them, and they're in my heart to be owned and experienced every single day. This is week five of our series, Fruitology. Again, the big idea, the spiritually fruitful life is the abundant life. You want an abundant life, again, it's not in all your possessions, all your popularity, all your prestige, all of that stuff. It is found in Christ and in these fruits of the Spirit that we're talking about in this series. And we said in the series, right, that there is one basic fruit, and that's love, and then everything else is like a different flavor of love. Like there's nine distinct flavors. There's original love, and then there's all the other flavors. And today's flavor we're going to talk about is the peace of God, which is closely related to joy. Joy and peace are like hand in hand. They go together. If you have joy, you'll probably have peace. If you have peace, you'll probably have joy. And, and that really, the, the way it works out. Now, Jesus talked a lot about peace in the scriptures. But one of his most gripping comments comes as he's entering Uh, Jerusalem on Passion Week, right? And it's interesting because Jerusalem, Salem, is the word for peace. And so he's entering this city of of peace to a degree. But listen to what he says in Luke 19 as he enters the city. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. Even back then, they were caught up in the what? The arrival fallacy. Even back in the days of Jesus. He goes on, for the days will come uh, upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And so he's basically saying, Jesus lamented that the people did not know really ultimately what or who would lead to genuine peace. Peace was there. Peace was in there. When Jesus rises from the grave, he walks into the room several times down the disciples and says, peace be with you. Like, I am peace. If you have me, you have peace. You know what's really fascinating about this this morning as we think about peace then is this is like our third go-around this year on the topic. We talked about worry back in January. We talked about uh, you know, or fear back in January. We talked about anxiety a few weeks back in our last series, and today we're talking about peace. And maybe this is something God's really wanting us to get a grasp on this year. We're all looking for the peace of God, right? We're all looking for the peace of God in our relationships, in our personal finances, in our daily circumstances, in our life goals and pursuits. And this is, again, where the arrival fallacy ties back in, right? Everyone thinks that this, that, or the next thing will bring them the peace they desperately want, and you can only find it in Christ. That's the bottom line. You won't find it apart from Christ. In fact, here's the reality. Everything I pursue outside of Christ to find joy and peace and contentment, all it does makes me more discontent, causes me more stress. Isn't that crazy? Everything I'm working for, if I just find, if I just achieve this or I just get to this, I'll have peace and joy and contentment and all it does is make me less of that. It has the reverse effect. So, let's look at our big idea and then today we're going to break this down into three simple points. And like we did two weeks ago on the love of God, I didn't plan this, but we're going to talk about the peace of God today and we're going to see it through again, the Trinitarian nature of God 
through the Father, Son, and through the Spirit. We'll see that. But here's our, our big idea today. And again, there's that the Trinitarian nature of God will be kind of underlying this message today. There's a great foundation under this message today, which ties into our big idea, which is basically this. Um, uh, I got it out of order here. The peace of God is a theology that affects my psychology. The peace of God is a theology that affects my psychology. And just, just a bit of clarification, many times we hear that word theology and we're like scared away. Like, well, I'm not some big Bible student. What's theology? And theology is really simple. It's the combination of two words. Theos is God and logos is the word. And it is basically the study of God and his word. There you go. If you can study God and his word, you're a theologist. How about that? Didn't even know you were. You can be. And this, what's, so beautiful about, what's so beautiful about peace is that it is a theology that is then rooted, or a theology rooted in Scripture and in God that affects my psychology. And we'll see that it's more than just a feeling. It's actually much more than that. But think about that. Think about, here's just a checklist, and it's on your notes if you have them. Circle any of those that you think can help def- describe or define peace. Like, is it an attitude? Is it a focus? Is it a feeling? Is it a desire? Is it a position? Is it a truth, action, or choice? Which of those do you think? And there's certainly multiple answers you could circle. I won't tell you which ones to circle and which ones not to circle, but by the end of the message, maybe it'll make more sense. But just some ideas there. of How do we, maybe the better question is, how do we normally view peace? And most of the world would look at that list and think, well, peace is a feeling. Like, it's just how I feel. And if that's you, then you're probably not living a very peaceful life because peace is ultimately a theology first that affects my psychology. So how can we experience the peace of God today? What does the peace of God look like through the Trinitarian eyes of God? Here we go. The peace of God is an eternal security. We're going to start at the bottom. We're going to start at the very foundation of, of peace and understand the peace of God is an eternal security. It's an eternal security. Uh, just a reality check here, right? To experience the peace of God, you need to be at peace with God. To experience the peace of God, you need to be at peace with God. You've probably heard that phrase before, maybe, but some maybe haven't, and some probably don't quite understand that. A lot of people in the world today have no idea they're not at peace with God. They're like, what do you mean I'm not at peace with God? I'm not angry at him. I don't, I'm kind of indifferent to the guy. I don't, you know, what do you mean? I'm at, what do you mean? But the reality is, at the same time, I think most people know something inside is missing, something inside is broken, something inside is off, because we were wired, right, to be in a relationship with God and to experience this peace and this joy and this contentment in Him. That's what we're wired for, and so something is off, and that's why they're wrapped up in this arrival fallacy, because I just got to find joy and peace and contentment somewhere else, because they're not finding it in Christ. Galatians, or Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Right there. So peace with God is a real thing. And it would, it would seem to imply here that we didn't have peace with God, right? It's like, you know, now, because I was justified, I, have peace. I didn't, but now I do. That's pretty, pretty awesome. So we can have peace with God. It's that simple. And you can't have the peace of God until you are at peace with God because when you have the peace, uh, when you're at peace with God, he gives you his spirit, which is where the fruit of the spirit comes from, right? But now if you jump down to verse eight, 
this is what Paul does. He takes this implication and makes it a definitive fact. Like he, he, he makes it real clear for us. But God shows us, Romans 5, 8, his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Listen to this. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. So, yes, the bottom line is, maybe you knew this, maybe you didn't, you either are or were the enemies of God. Everyone in this room today, you're either an enemy of God or you were an enemy of God. And if you are an enemy of God, you know, you need to take care of that issue. You need to take care of that issue. We'll talk about how that happens today in the message. But the reality is, yeah, and, and many people in the world would object and say, time out, Bill, I'm not an enemy of God. Again, I'm indifferent to the guy. I don't even hardly know him. But the reality is, from God's vantage point, from God who is holy, who made you holy, and now you have sinned and, 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 and departed from his image and holiness, God would say, no, you're my enemy. You are. Because you are against my holiness and my word and my ways. See, the reality is what happens is, is that we are born under the curse of Adam's sin, right? And we're born with this sin nature, meaning we are separated or, extra- or estranged from God. Like Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, and then they were estranged from God. That's our relationship. That means when you die, if you're an, an enemy of God, you don't have peace with God, you can't go to heaven. You're, you're expelled from heaven. You're expelled from the garden. When you, when you come to peace with Christ and with God, yeah, that, then you can go back into his presence and you are invited into heaven for all of eternity. That's the reality. And this is where Jesus comes in because Jesus came to bring or to make peace between us and the Father. He came to make it so that the Father could adopt us into his family again. Colossians 1.19, For in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The whole, the whole, the whole Trinitarian nature is in Jesus, right? And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. On the cross, when Jesus shed and died, the whole Easter story, that's how he made peace with you and God. He made made that at least an option, right? God did his part. God made peace with you. He forgave you. Now, and that applies to everyone. He, God didn't just pick and choose and say, I'm going to forgive some and not up. No, he forgave everybody. He, he offers peace to everybody. Now the ball's in your court on your end. You have to make a decision. You have to make a choice. And that's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. So if you want to apply this message today, you've got you to be at peace with God. Like you've got to have the Holy Spirit in your life, right? You have to have the Holy Spirit in here to bear the fruit of the Spirit out here in your life and in your relationship. So I wonder, are you, are you at peace with God this morning? Have you admitted your sin before a holy God, believed that Jesus died in your place for your sin, and then received his forgiveness, his life, his peace? Have you just received it? That's that simple. Now I clarified this. I said that the peace of God here is eternal security like i clarified it with the word eternal because it is because when you when you are adopted when you are regenerated that'll you'll never lose that you will never ever there's there's a there's a line that you cross like many everybody kind of believes this every christian believes this to some degree like many people believe like well once you go into heaven well you you can never lose your salvation like you're in heaven you know you're never going to lose it 
But the Bible, I believe, teaches that line is back here. The minute you put your faith and trust in Christ, He makes you a new person. He puts His Spirit in you. He gives you a brand new heart. He adopts you into His family. You can never lose that. No matter what you do the rest of your life, no matter how you stumble or struggle through life, whatever doubts you have or sins you commit, you're never going to lose that. God's never going to unadopt you. He's never going to unregenerate you. You are now His. And that's why this is an eternal peace because you can never lose it. But let me show you a fascinating passage, okay? So we are reconciled, pieces made by the blood of Christ. Fascinating passage in Matthew 7. And I think of this because many times that when I hear, hear this read and discussed in classes, this always gives a little bit of angst to people. I wonder how you read this passage. Listen to this, Matthew 7, 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So the context is he's talking about false teachers. You will recognize them by their fruits. So, right? Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree, this is a simple parable. Get the big idea. Don't, don't dig this t- into this to dissect it for deep theology. But there's a big idea here again. So every healthy tree, there's a good tree, bears, uh, bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. So there's two kinds of trees. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And so basically, the bottom line is there are good teachers and bad teachers. There are teachers that have the gospel and preach the gospel and preach the gospel through Christ, and there are those that preach something else. That's the, kind of the big idea here. Just, just kind of the context of this. And these ministries produce likewise whatever they teach. Now, Going on though, listen to this. How do you hear what he says here next? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And the question I have for you today is, how do you hear that passage? How do you hear this passage? Do you hear it like fearfully like, I hope that's not me. I hope when I die someday and stand before God, I'm like, but God, I did this for you and that for you and didn't I do this in your name and didn't I do that in your name and preach and, and, and God says, depart from me. Or do you hear this confidently? It's like, that'll never happen to me. I know that that's never gonna be my, I don't have to worry about that. Or do you kind of listen, listen to it with a bit of doubt? Like, I don't think it's me. I hope it's not me. Like, could it be me? It's like, so let me tell you the truth. If you have put your faith and trust in Christ, this this verse should give you no angst or concern or worry whatsoever because here's the reality. The people Jesus is talking to here, well, they're the false teachers, right? They don't have the gospel. But the bottom line is, they never knew Jesus. He He says as much, depart from me, I never knew you. They never had a relationship with Christ. They never were saved. Now, I heard a great illustration this week that takes us even further and helps us understand it. Somebody was saying, remember back in the day, those those two questions were always really big and prevalent. We would always say to someone who's not saved, if you died tonight, do you know you would go to heaven? And then we'd follow it up and say, if you did go to heaven and you stood before the Lord and the Lord said, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say to him? And... 
right? Well, well, in this story here, in this parable, those are the questions that are being asked. Jesus is looking at these false teachers and saying, so why should I let you into heaven? And they're saying, well, didn't we cast out demons in your name? And didn't we preach the gospel in your name? And didn't we do all these mighty works in your names? And Jesus is saying, depart from me, I never knew you. In other words, he's saying, catch it, this is what it is, it's right here. My peace is not about what I do for God, but what Christ did for me. They didn't have peace with God because it was all about, well, didn't I do this, and didn't I do that, and didn't I do the next thing? And the answer is, when, when they come to him, is, is saying, Lord, thank you for saving me. But they didn't have the gospel. They were false teachers. So that verse should not give anybody angst or concern or worry. Because those individuals who are doing all these mighty things were never saved. And were never putting their faith and trust in Christ. And the bottom line is, peace and security only comes when I am trusting in what Christ did for me, not what I do for him. And so we gotta hear these verses sometimes and hear them through the gospel and listen to them closely and when you do. And he says in there, you know, they're not doing the the will of my father. What's the will of our father? That we would trust him and not ourselves. That's the bottom line. That's the bottom line. Today's big idea, the peace of God is a theology that affects my psychology. It is a peace of God. It is a peace of God. Uh, is a theology that affects my psychology. Fascinating little story. Let me read this. The opening lines of a recent article in iNews reads, those of us without traditional religion are left to make our peace with uncertainty. There's nothing comforting about being agnostic. In the article, Eleanor Margolis laments her agnosticism and muses about the benefits of faith. It was in February, and while Russian tanks rolled into Ukraine, that I started to wonder if it was time to find God. Definite God, that is. Not not the half-hearted agnostic one built on a Jenga tower of uncertainty. The, The addition of a heightened nuclear threat made me desperate for a vengeful Old Testament God, someone to smite the warmongers and oligarchs, the evil ones. No, not what they do. When nothing is left of civilization but the cockroaches. The last time I felt so envious of religious people was when my mom was dying of cancer. Certainty about an afterlife sure would, come in, sure would have come in handy then. And prayer might have created the illusion that I had some power over the situation. Instead, I was treated to the spiritual equivalent of the shrug emoji. I became a devout follower of the one true religion of the 21st century uncertainty. Those of us without traditional religion are left to make our peace with uncertainty certainty that's eleanor margolis i'm an agnostic but news about the ukraine war is so scary right now that i'm considering becoming a nun (laughs) and i read that and i thought you know what is it though what keeps this woman and others like her from simply turning to christ could it be the fact that the that there's too much certainty wrapped up in the gospel Like there's too much certainty and clarity wrapped up in the gospel that shows you that religion is not the answer. She doesn't need religion. She needs Christ. And it's not about what she does for God. It's about what he did for her. And I wonder if maybe because if if that's true, the rest of this is true. And then, oh, all of a sudden, I have to live my life according to this. And maybe that's a cross for some people that is too great to even consider bearing. Wow. The peace of God is a theology that affects my psychology. Where does this go next? Number two, the peace of God is an internal reality. It's an internal, so first it's an eternal security in the spirit, right? And now it is a internal reality. Or, it, excuse me, 
It is an eternal security found in Christ. Now it is an internal reality. <clears throat> Excuse me, from the Holy Spirit. From the Holy Spirit. This comes down to the fact the Holy Spirit indwells us. And here's the reality. Most of the time when as Christians we, we don't have peace in our life. Think about this, right? It's because, like, remember those two trees? Like, we can live in the Spirit. We can live in the flesh. And most of the time when we as Christians don't have this sort of peace in our life, it's because we are, like, we're in Christ, we're saved, but we're living in the flesh, now, there's going to be conflict in your life. I'll show you that here as we go through this, right? Now, if you're not saved, understand, if you're not saved, you're always going to have conflict. The arrival fallacy is your life. I'm trying to find this apart from Christ. I'm, I'm trying to find the, the fake fruit because I can't have the genuine real stuff in Christ. So you'll always have conflict to some degree. But for those of us who are Christians that don't experience this peace, it's because we are not in harmony with the Spirit and we're in the flesh, living in the flesh at the time not walking in the Spirit. Think of it this way, right? Before salvation, here's before, we've used this many times. Before salvation, we are a soul, right? Which is my thinker, feeler, and chooser. I have a spirit that is dead to God. I live in a body. And my default position here is just to live in the flesh. It's just to live as an enemy of God, contrary to His holiness and His will and His word and His ways. But once we are saved after salvation, we are now a spirit that is alive to God. I'm alive to God. I have a soul. I still think and feel and choose, right? I have a personality and I live in a body. My default position now, now what's my default position? Well, my default position is to walk in the spirit. It's, it's to think and, and, and feel and choose in the spirit. And anytime I don't do that, there'll be conflict in my life. I'm not gonna like it. I'm gonna be uneasy. And uh, the, the greater the issue, the deeper the conflict that's the way it works. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. I know someone on Facebook, right? And, and they're a Christian. And they go on there constantly defending and getting upset at others who, who tell them they can't be a Christian and be gay. Well, I tell them you can't be a Christian and be gay because if you're a Christian, as I said, your identity is in Christ. You're a Christian. So your identity is not in being gay. But now, can you, as a Christian, can you practice the gay lifestyle if you're in Christ? Yes! but you won't have peace. You'll be in conflict. And that's what she is. And she goes on Facebook every day because she's in conflict and defends why she can live this kind of life when, it's con when she knows it's contrary to Scripture. See, if you're in Christ, you can't lose that. If you cross that line and you're in Christ, he adopts you into the family and you fall into sinful behavior, you don't lose your standing with God, but you'll lose your peace. And every day you're gonna fight and argue with everyone around you. So, so look at this then. Here's where peace comes into this picture. Peace is walking in the Spirit, and walking in the Spirit is when my soul, when my thoughts and feelings and choices or think actions are surrendered to the Holy Spirit inside of me. So see it in three ways here. Peace is when my thoughts are in tune with the Holy Spirit. When my thoughts are in tune with the Holy Spirit, I will have peace. Here it is, Philippians 4, 8, and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What happens? When you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Can it be any more clear? If you're in Christ and you think about the things of the Spirit, 
God will peaceably be with you. That's, that that just doesn't mean, like God's presence is right here. He's with me. That means God will be with me. Like God will be in agreement with me and I'll be in agreement with God and I'll be in harmony with the Spirit and I will know peace. That's, a, that's just an incredible, incredible verse there. The question comes, anytime I'm struggling in my life and I'm not feeling at peace, ask, my, ask yourself, what am I dwelling on? What, am I, what are my thoughts consumed with? And if, if your thoughts are in a bad place, take the necessary steps then to get your thoughts in the right place. Put on some praise, praise music. Read some scripture. Call up a Christian brother or sister in Christ. Dwell on your blessings and your worries will shrink. Let me give you one other example of this in scripture that's really, really powerful. Romans 8.1. This is what Derek read earlier. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Note a contrast coming up here. We'll see it in a minute. Okay? For the law of the spirit of, of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Again, if you're in Christ, no condemnation. For God has done what the law weakened by my flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Note the contrast there, right? So there's two things. According to, walking according to the flesh or according to the spirit is my standing. Like that's, I'm walking a certain way because that's who I am in Christ. But the others, then he talks about setting the mind. That's my choice. Setting my choice. I either set my choice on Christ or on the flesh. I'm either standing in Christ or in the flesh, and every day I'm making the choice to put my mind on Christ or on the flesh. And if I am in Christ and set my mind on the flesh, I'll have disharmony and conflict in my life. I won't be at peace. If I am in the flesh, I only have one option, set my mind on the flesh. And I'm always in, in struggling because, yeah, and not, no, not necessarily so much with sin, like for the unbeliever, like sin is their default position. It's not sin that is the issue. It's like sin is kind of fun, but it's the unfulfillment of sin. It's like, yeah. Like I'm unfulfilled in this. Like I'm, I'm, I'm looking for love, joy, peace, contentment, all those things. My default position, I'm a sinner. I'm gonna sin. But it's unfulfilling. But if we're in Christ and we live, set our mind on the things of the flesh, we're not gonna be, at peace, and we're going to be living a peace a life that is not full of peace. So here he goes on. Here's the note: the default position here for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. He's just saying that's what should happen. That's your default position. And again, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. That's just what should happen. That's just our default position. That should happen. If that doesn't happen, then we won't have peace. Look at this last verse. Then verse six. Look, listen to this. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. Like you'll kill, your, you'll kill any, any happiness in your life, any, any potential joy, peace, whatever. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. You follow it there? So if you set your mind on the spirit, if you're in the spirit, set your mind on the spirit, dwell on the things of the spirit, you will have life and you will have peace. Here's a second way. Again, the peace of God is a theology that affects my psychology. He goes on here, right? So then it's not just my thoughts, but my soul has emotions. So peace is when my emotions are in subjection to the Holy Spirit as well. Peace is when my emotions are also subject to the Holy Spirit. Here's what he says. 
Philippians 4. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. How, how awesome is that? And again, how clear can it be? You will experience the peace of God when you surrender your emotions, your feelings, your angst, your worry, your fears, whatever it is, even your hate and your anger and your bitterness and your doubt, whatever, surrender it to God. And you can know His peace. And note, this is a peace that goes beyond human comprehension. Like, this is like most people just can't comprehend how you can have that kind of peace because it is not a peace of the world. It is a fruit of the Spirit. Luke 18, 1. How about this? Simple little verse. And he told them a parable to the effect they ought to always, always to pray and to not lose heart. Like, do you see it there? Like, you know what? Let's, let's be a little proactive in our prayer, right? And let's pray before we lose heart. Let, let, let's give God our emotions before they, take, they consume us and take control of us, and, right? And then I'll have peace. So I can pray about that fear and that anger and that hurt and that worry before it consumes me and overtakes me. I can bring it to God and He will guard my heart and guard my mind. Wow. See, we're really good at praying about something after it turns into a crisis, aren't we? After it consumes us, after we're consumed with this issue or all these emotions, then we... That, but how about if we prayed before we lost heart? A man has been visiting a therapist because he has a fear of monsters living under his bed. The man has been seeing his doctor for months. Every time he would come in, the doctor would ask, have you made any progress? Every time the man would say no, the man decided to go and see another doctor. When he went back to his original doctor, the doctor asked, have you made any progress? He said, yes, I have. I'm feeling all better now. The, do the doctor asked, what happened? The man said, I went to another doctor and he cured me in one session. The doctor asked, what did he tell you? The man said, he just told me to cut the legs off my bed. <laughs> well, maybe prayer will do that for us, right? Just cut the legs off the bed and get rid of those emotions. Pray before you lose heart or before you see any monsters under the bed. And then peace is when my choices are in tune with the Holy Spirit. My soul, my body, my soul, my, my thoughts and feelings and now my choices or my actions. The truth is we all want greater peace in our life, right? Did you know that sometimes peace is just a choice? Like, we're, we're, one area we all want peace in our relationships, right? You all want more peace in your relationships. And the reality is, to some degree, peace just comes down to making a choice. Here's Romans 12. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate, uh, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Like in your relationship, on your side of the relationship, just choose peace. If, if it requires you to say, I'm sorry, if it requires you to forgive someone, if it requires you to be patient with someone, just do what you have to do to live at peace with that person. And, and maybe... They, maybe they think you need to apologize and you think they need to apologize, whatever. Do whatever you can. And the reality is you can stand over here. If you're in Christ, you can stand over here, set your mind on the Spirit and make peace in that relationship. If they are a brother and sister in Christ, they can join you over here and set their mind on the Spirit and make peace with you, but, but that's their choice. 
Like in any relationship, you take care of you. You can't make anybody else uh, make peace with you. Do only what you can do from your side of the relationship. Just remember that. Just remember that. Can I bring this up one more time too? Because this is where this is where I was talking earlier about Christ who made peace with us, right? He made peace with all of us. He offered forgiveness to all of us. He didn't pick and choose and say, I'll forgive these people, but I'm not, I, didn't choose to, I didn't choose to die for them. I didn't choose to elect them. I didn't choose to. This verse blows it out of the water because what is God's standard? Do I get to pick and choose who I make peace with? Do I get to pick and choose who I forgive? No. I'm, I'm to make peace with everyone. I'm to forgive everyone. Everyone. So why, wouldn't, why would Christ give me a standard and not live up to it? When Christ died on the cross, he made peace with the entire world, with every single person. He forgave every single person and he put the ball in their court and said, I've, I've, I've redeemed you. I've forgiven you. I've made peace with you. You have to choose it. You're not redeemed. You're not reconciled. You, there's no peace until you choose it. But on my side of the relationship, I did everything. And that's exactly how it works for you and me. On our side of the relationship, we are to do absolutely everything we can. Remember the standard for God is, this goes back to forgiveness. Like peace is tied to forgiveness, right? Here it is in Colossians 3.12, and watch where this goes. Colossians 3.12, bearing with one another, being patient. If one has a complaint against another, forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you. How's God forgive? He forgave me totally. Forgave everyone. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the what? Peace of Christ rule in your hearts. To which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Some of you want peace in your life. All you need to do, all you need to do is forgive somebody else and, and do everything you can in your power to make peace and leave the ball up to them. That's the simple, simple reality. As Christians, we all share the spirit of Christ. We should all be in harmony. And are you seeing it even more clearly now? The peace of God is a theology that affects my psychology. So I can choose peace and forgiveness relationally. I have that choice. And peace is when my choice is aligned with the spirit. The spirit is already in in there bearing witness with my spirit saying forgive them, make peace with them, you know, and then, of course, there's discernment involved about where the relationship goes and, and, and how you treat that relationship in the future. Sure, there's all kinds of nuance in there, but that's the scriptures right there. I love this. Lucy is saying to Charlie Brown, I hate everything. I hate everybody. I hate the whole wide world. Charlie says, but I, but I thought you had inner peace. Lucy replies, I do have inner peace, but I still have outer obnoxiousness. <laughs> Sometimes we just need to take that step. The peace of God is a theology that affects my psychology. So the peace of God is an eternal security found in Christ. It is an internal, it is an internal reality rooted in the Spirit. And finally, peace is this. Look at Galatians 4.4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons of God, sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, <clears throat> but a son. And if a son, then you are an heir through Christ. So the spirit comes into me and then he cries out, Daddy, 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 because we're in this relationship and peace is a parental authority. It's an eternal security. It's an internal reality. It is a parental authority. Like I have a father. 
and he is my authority figure and I will trust him, right? When we were saved and then reconciled to God, we immediately became his adopted children. We sang it this morning, did we not? From my mother's womb you have chosen me. Love has called my name. I've been born again into your family. Your blood flows through my veins. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. I'm a child of God. And so we just want to, peace in our life, sometimes it's just recognizing God's the Father, living under His authority, His parental authority. You want peace in your finances? We're not going to go, we don't have time to go into it. Just follow God's financial plan. Sometime I'll give it to you. I had jotted it down a little bit. I'm not even going to go there, but... God has a financial plan here. You just follow God's financial plan, you'll have peace. It's, it's that simple. And you know what? It's not some, uh, something that makes you feel a lot of guilt and it's not overbearing. It's actually a very freeing thing when you start to live by God's financial plan. But there is also peace to be known in our problems. I want you to look at a, a story with me today. And I want to just read this as we kind of wrap up with this story. This is a, 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 a very iconic story. I want to see it kind of through a different set of eyes this morning. It's in Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. And you know what? I forgot to put it on the screen. I'm just realizing that I didn't. Let me read it to you in Mark chapter 4. You'll know this story. Close your eyes and just take the story in as you can, right? On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Jesus said to the disciples, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now we often look at this passage in a very literal sense, right? We look at it and we like we chide the disciples and we chide ourselves for those times in life. We're not at peace because we've got the spirit right here. Like Jesus is right here and we should have peace in life and we don't have peace, right? We kind of beat ourselves up in that respect. But, but I want to think about, maybe there's a, a lesson here that's just slight, just to see that lesson in a slightly different angle this morning that might be kind of powerful for us. Remember that Jesus, while he is on earth, he is truly God and truly man. He's entirely God, he's entirely man. While he's on earth as God, he's holding the universe together so it doesn't implode, right? We know that whole scenario. Like, by him all things consist uh, we, we know the physics and the science and the chemistry of this earth would all implode if Christ did not hold all things together. He's doing that while he's on earth. But he's also a man. And as a man, he's, we know he set aside his divine privileges so he didn't have an unfair advantage in life. Like when he went through life, he went through life like you and I were. He's in this boat traveling through this storm, not as God, as the disciples. How do we know that? He's sleeping. Does God need to sleep? No. Does Jesus need to sleep as a man? Yes, he's down in the boat sleeping in the middle of the storm, right? And so that's pretty amazing. And I think the question that we have to ask here that we maybe don't ask is, how can Jesus sleep through the storm when the disciples can't? 
How can he be at peace in this storm when the disciples can? It's not that they should be at peace because he's in the boat. It's like, no, how can he be at peace? Like this is a bad storm and he's going through the storm like they are. And so how does this work? The disciples are all consumed with fear and anxiety, but Jesus is at peace. How is this possible? It is possible because Jesus lived his life constantly under what? The authority of the Father. This is what he often said, I can only do the works the Father shows me or gives me the authority to do. So Jesus lived his life as we are to live our life. Watch this. He lived his life under the parental authority of the Father and through the inner reality of the Spirit who empowered him. That's how he lived his life. That's how he made it to the cross to die for our sins. Now Jesus will calm the storm, for sure. And the disciples will be in awe, for sure, because wow, look, look at the, how the creation just bowed down to Jesus. But how did Jesus calm that storm? He was sleeping in a boat. He's a man. How did he do it? Because he was under the authority of the Father and he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And God said, okay, we're gonna calm this storm for the disciples. Not to prove that he is God, but to prove that he is sent from God, to prove that he is the Messiah, to prove that he is the one greater than Moses. Now the lesson for us then is what? We can say the lesson is, well, we should have peace because Jesus is here and he's in my boat and I should have peace in life. But maybe there's another lesson. Like maybe the the lesson isn't as literal as it is figurative in the sense that maybe I need to learn that I like Jesus can stand up in the storm and say, peace be still, and not to the storm, but to me. Like, peace be still. Like, I can go through the storm and have the peace that Jesus had. He's my example of how to face life. That's the point. He is God. He's holding the whole universe together. He's man. He's sleeping in a boat. He's tired. He's worn out. Ministry's hard. But he's at peace. Because he lived under the authority of the Father and with the internal reality of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And that is how he went on to calm this storm because God said, okay, I'm going to give you the authority. See, this doesn't mean that we can go out and do all these amazing things that Jesus did because God doesn't give us the authority to do that today. He may, but normally that's not the case. And oftentimes we're going to go through storms in life when God doesn't stop the storm. That's okay. And I can have peace. Yes, I can have peace because the Spirit's here. And I can have peace because I can speak to myself or remind myself, hey, if Jesus can have, Jesus showed me how to have peace, to trust the Father, to trust the Spirit, and to know that he is, yes, indeed, with me in the boat. They use an interesting word in there. Don't you care that we are perishing? And even if you're perishing in life, you can have peace. Howard's laying on his deathbed. He may die in four days, four weeks. He can be at peace. We can be at peace even when we think we're perishing. Perishing doesn't take away our peace in the Father. There is a peace to be experienced then in our praise. There is a peace. And the reality is we go through these storms of life and one of the most beautiful things of the storms we go through in life, one of the most beautiful things is what they show us about the glory and the beauty and the wonder and the awe of God. Whether it's the flash of the lightning or the sonic boom of the thunder or the beauty of the rainbow that follows it, whatever it is, We go through storms and we go through other kinds of storms, right? Like figurative storms and we can see the beauty of God and we can learn the God of a thousand names. I know you by a thousand names and I stand in awe at what you've done and he does that in our life every day and every time we go through a storm we can just learn a little more about who God is and how God works 
and what God is doing in our life. Just as the joy of the Lord is my strength, the peace of God is real. It's a real thing, Romans 5.1. It is really mine in Christ and it can be realized through any storm we encounter in this world if I just, in the storm, set my mind on the Spirit, right? Set my mind on the Spirit. Before I give you my closing thought, what did we learn today then? The peace of God is a theology. Can you see it's a theology, a study of God and His Word? There is peace there that affects my psychology. It affects how I feel. The peace of God is an eternal security found in Christ. It is an internal reality rooted in the Holy Spirit and it is a parental authority recognized in my Heavenly Father. And Jesus exemplified this for us in a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful way. Let me give you one last thought. You can jot down what you want here in closing. There's no other blanks on your notes. But I was thinking about the arrival fallacy one more time as we close. The arrival fallacy looks at peace and joy and contentment as feeling somewhere out there, like I'm on this journey to find them. I'm in pursuit of them. And the reality is we know that that's not the case. As Christians, we know that peace and joy and contentment are in fact already ours in Christ. They are not out there. They are in here. They, they consume me from the inside. Remember this verse. Now may the God of peace, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, 24. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. I was thinking about how the rival fallacy for us as believers, really this whole thing is wrapped up in sanctification. For us, it's wrapped up in sanctification in this sense that when I come to Christ and I have peace with Christ, my spirit is at peace. I, I have a peace that's eternal. I can never lose it. My spirit is at peace with God. And then every day I go out and I choose to set my mind on the spirit and, and, and kind of align my thoughts and my feelings and my choices with the spirit, I can experience peace on a daily basis. But the reality is all of us know, right? That that ultimate redemption, that ultimate sanctification, that ultimate glorification, that ultimate joy and peace and contentment isn't going to ever be found in this world, is it? It's going to be found when we go to glory. I watched Howard lay in the hospital and that just came to me. It's like he has the peace of the Spirit. He knows Christ. He's lived his whole life and uh, most of the latter part of his life, I should say. And he's been a guy that seems to have his mind usually set on the Spirit and has lived a life of peace. And yet, his rugged, frail body that's not looking the best, looking really weak, his body wants that eternal peace of glory. Yeah, there is an arrival that we're all looking for in glory when we, we know the fullness of our peace and our sanctification in Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you for this word today. I don't know what, 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 where it lands for anyone in this room, but I know it's a powerful word. There is something so incredible about the theology that affects our psychology, about this peace that is rooted in you and not in this world. And it's not about what I do. It's the peace that I have in you. Thank you for just making me aware of that. And Lord, if there's anybody here in some way that's just not got their mind on the Spirit and they're walking out of the Spirit and they're, and, and, and they're feeling the conflict of that and the disharmony of that, for all of us in whatever area of our life, because we all have areas of our life where that's probably the case, and Lord, just help us get ourselves aligned with you in that area. 
Make that real to us. And let me just say one last thing before we leave today. If there's anybody in this room today and you know you're not at peace with God, you know that God has never adopted you, you have yet to, uh, you have yet to receive Christ, you, you've, you've yet to admit to him you're a sinner and then receive his forgiveness in life with every eye closed, every head bowed. If, if that's you today, if, you, if you're, you're saying today, I want to be saved. Today, I'm, saying, I'm just saying yesterday to Jesus. Will you just lift your hand up today? If there's anybody like that in the room, one, two, three people, anybody just wants to say today, I just want to say yes to Christ. All right, thank you, Lord, for this good day. Bless the rest of our day in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.